Well, when I wrote this message, I had intentionally um, decided not to talk about Dave Ingram. And I'll tell you why. It's more or less self-protection, I guess. I have been a puddle uh, periodically this entire week. And, um, and I thought, boy, you know, I really just don't want to get up there and become the mess that I am. Like it's simmering under the surface. If I open the door, it'll rush out. And, um, but I thought, you know, what the heck? I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean... You know, if you think about it, uh, we all belong to the Lord, right? Well, that includes our emotions too. And it seems to me that he should have my mind and he should have my heart and he should have my mouth, certainly in a moment like this. And, and if he wants to use my emotions, well, then he can do that too. That's for him. But I'm going to miss that guy. <clears throat> I'm going to talk a lot about him at four o'clock this afternoon. So you can pray that I'll be able to do that. That'd be really helpful and appreciate that. But I knew that I should say something at least when we got up and and we sang, there's no place that I'd rather be. And I can honestly tell you guys that there is no place that I'd rather be on earth than here in sharing the love of Christ with you. But there is a place I'd rather be. And that is with Jesus. And that is where Dave is. And I want you to know that when it's my day, just like him, that's the place I'd rather be. And he waits for us there. The other part of that song that struck me is we sing, you know, set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain and that I can't control. The last church service that Dave attended here was this past Christmas Eve, and he came to the five o'clock service, I think it was, and, I, I, and Barb came to get me, can you come talk to Dave? I'm like, yes, you know, so I just dropped everything, and I went back and sat with him back there in, in the fellowship hall about four rows deep with all the chairs that we had set up, and I, I said, hey man, I said, pray for the preacher today, you know, and, uh, and he held my hand, and he said, you've got a fire in your bones. He said, you just get up and give your message, and I thought, what a benediction to receive from that man on my ministry. Um, I have not known this church without Dave Ingram. He was the first preacher I actually ever heard here. We showed up one Sunday, and it was in the gym, like at the end of 97, and, and he was speaking that day. And uh, he has been a faithful friend there since. So. so I love that man, and I hope that you guys will come and celebrate his life with us this afternoon, if you can. I'll tell you what, if we fail to celebrate... Well, we have failed. We have failed. All right, now I'm going to shift into speaker mode, okay? As we return today to the study of the books of First and Second Samuel, and as we re-enter into the story of the king that we've been walking through, and as we pick up the principles that we've already learned that are governing us, principles like, A, we have a king. We don't have a mayor. We don't have a governor. We don't have a president. We don't have a senator. We don't have some representative. We don't have somebody we've elected to office and delegated authority to. And, you know, as long as they do what we want and serve us well, well, you know, then we'll give them our resources and we'll put their bumper sticker on our car and we'll rally together and help to get them reelected. No, that's not what we have. We have a king. That's different. And his name is Jesus. It's not my name. It's not your name. And here's the way that it works with a king. When you have a king, then you live for the king. You live for 
the king. Which brings us face to face with the reality today that when you live for the king, since the king has a different agenda, the king has a different purpose, the king has a different mission, the king has a different kind of wisdom than the wisdom of this world. When you live for the king, then your life as a result looks markedly different from the lives of those people who do not live for the king. And therefore, if your life does not look markedly different from the lives of those people who do not live for the king, then do the math. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Then you're not living for the king either is the idea, or at least you're not living for the king in this particular area, or maybe it's areas, of your life. And here's what happens, and we'll see this in the story today, when we come to Christ our king with a little king in our hands, and we enter into the throne room of our heart, and we walk very boldly, or maybe sheepishly, I don't know, up to the throne of our hearts where Christ our king sits, and we say to him, Lord, um, I've been thinking this over, and, and here's kind of what I'd like to happen. In fact, well, not kind of. I would like for you, and I'm trying to say this nicely, to vacate the throne. And I think you ought to not just leave the throne, honestly. I think that you need to leave the whole throne room. Now, I don't want you to go too far because I realize there's utility here. You know, I want to at least be able to get you over the intercom system in the building. But I think you need to leave the throne. I think you need to leave the throne room because otherwise it's going to get awkward. I think you need to shut the door. And I'd really just like for you to wait in the hall. Here's what happens when we do that. He says, all right, no problem. You want the throne? that's what you think you need, I'll give you what you think you need. But here's why I'm going to give you what you think you need, and I'm telling you this in advance. It is so that through the tyranny of this tragic little king that you've chosen to worship and serve and to bend your whole life around, you think you will get freedom? You'll get slavery. You think liberty is where you're going? you'll get oppression. You think that this king is going to bring you life? This king is going to bring you death. I will vacate the throne. I will leave the room. I'll shut the door. I'll stand in the hall until you realize through the tyrannical rule of this little king that you've chosen that I am the king that you need. And you come out to me broken and bleeding and in genuine and real repentance and humility You bow before me and confess your idolatry, at which point I'll resume the throne of your life. I will govern over it for good with my wisdom. I will forgive your sin at the expense of my own blood, and I will begin to heal your wounds. But know this, they will leave scars. However, I'll even use those scars for good. We pick up our study today in 1 Samuel chapter 8, which follows 1 Samuel chapter 7, and not just numerically, it follows it thematically. It's two chapters that are meant to be considered together, really. So what did we see? What did we see in chapter 7? Well, we saw that Samuel was a really effective king. No, but he was a really effective judge. When you look at the picture of the nation of Israel and the governance of this great man Samuel in chapter 7, what do you see? You see that they are spiritually revived under Samuel, that they are politically united, that's new, under Samuel. You see that they are what? Militarily delivered from their enemies under Samuel. And here's the deal, not just for a little while, 
for a long, long, long time. Samuel is a young man in chapter 7. He's an old man in chapter 8. Listen to how it begins. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old. Wow. Decades of a really effective leader. A really effective judge. But now notice what Samuel does, because there's a pattern here. And you're meant to notice the pattern. He does the same thing that his predecessor, Eli, the previous judge of Israel, did. He takes his sons and he elevates them to a position of leadership within the nation of Israel that they have neither the character nor the competence to do. Eli took his sons and he made them priests. What do we read here? Samuel takes his sons and he makes them judges over Israel. So now what do you think is going to happen? Because it's the same pattern, guys. What happened with the sons of Eli? The sons of Eli came into the throne room of their hearts and really kind of into the temple itself. And they said, here's the little God of sex. Dear God, would you please vacate the throne and go out in the hall? Because we're going to worship sex. That's going to be our deal. That's what they did. Samuel's sons do the same thing. But they bring to God the God of money. Please, Lord, go stand in the hall. Because we're going to make our whole lives revolve around this. We're going to sell and give everything we have to this. It says in verse 3, Yet Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after financial gain, is the point. For they took bribes and perverted justice. You know, and I read that this week and I thought, my goodness, we assume that we are so different from these people, don't we? Because we're different technologically, we're different philosophically, we're different educationally, we're different in terms of our medicine, we're different in terms of our society, we're different in terms of our language, we're different in terms of our culture. Let me tell you how we're not different. We are not different in terms of our hearts. That never changes. One of the documented, verifiable, identified lessons of history is that human nature never changes. Here's another one of those lessons of history. It is that we don't learn from the lessons of history. It's a fact. Here's what we do. We go down the same street that everyone else has gone down and gotten all the same results in all the different eras of man. But we think this time for us, It's going to be different. But when it isn't, we can't pretend like we're surprised. The gods of this world that rivals or that rivaled with the true God of this world then are exactly the same now. And you cannot live in our city and fail to see that. And now notice what the people do. We read in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, which is where he lived, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your way. So just like the sons of Eli had become notorious, and all Israel knew, well, the sons of Samuel became notorious, and all Israel knew. And so they come to Samuel with a very reasonable request. They say, Samuel, pray to God that he will give us another judge just like you because your reign and rule over us is undeniably, verifiably, factually awesome. He just can't have the same last name as you. It's not what they do. But the point is you read through chapter 7 and you get to chapter 8 and that's what you think they will do. I mean, why would they not do that? Why indeed? Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. 
So now appoint for us a king to judge us. And then don't miss the rest of this verse because I think it's the key to the whole story. So that we may be like, that's the idea, all of the other nations. And Samuel is offended and displeased and God is offended and displeased. But why are they offended? Like what exactly is the sin here? The sin, I think, is in the reason why they ask for the king. Surely they are not asking for a king because they want to be revived spiritually. No, that happened under Samuel. He's a judge. Okay, how about united politically? No, no, no. Check that one off too. He's a judge. Well, what about military deliverance from their enemies? I mean, surely that must... No, that's not it either. No, they had that under Samuel. He's a judge. They had this long era of peace and prosperity. Good grief, what more could they ask for? They're not asking for a king to be out from under the perils of hereditary succession in the nation. Samuel appoints his sons, and they're going, you know what, we don't like that kind of a deal. That's not the way we want to get leaders. But in asking for a king, they're guaranteeing that that's exactly the way they're going to get leaders. Listen, in a monarchy, the way to become the next king is to happen to be the oldest son of the previous king, generally speaking. So yes, they'll avoid Samuel's sons, but how many wicked sons will they get? So that's not it. And I don't think the fact that they ask for a king as opposed to a judge, the simple change in their form of government is the offense either because you go all the way back into the Torah, you go all the way back into the writings of Moses, and Moses himself laid the foundation. He did the groundwork, if you will, for the monarchy of Israel. The sin is that in making this particular request for a king, what they're saying is we don't want to be your people. Instead, we want to be free from your kingship, God, so that we can live like anybody else. We want to be like all the other nations. So off the throne with you then. Lord, what we'd really like for you to do is stand in the hall. (laughs) And do you know what he does? He says, all right, sure, not a problem. There you go. Read verse 7. It says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. He's saying, Look, you want me to stand in the hall? I'm going to stand in the hall. But here's why I'm going to stand in the hall. Because this is what you think you need, and I want you to learn through the tyrannical, oppressive, death-bringing rule of your little king that you've chosen, the king that you really need. And then you can come out into the hall, and I'll be there. And I'm not going to rub it in your face and say, I told you so, and all. No, no, no. You come in real repentance. You come in real humility. You bow yourself authentically before me. I will retake the throne of your life. I will forgive your sins. I will begin to heal your wounds. And they will leave scars. And then I'll bring good things even out of your scars. And I will govern your life with a wisdom that is different from the rest of this world. And that feels small. But actually brings freedom. It's ironic, really. Like freedom is found within the confines of the law of God, within the fence posts that he erects for us. It's when we break down the fence, we open the gate and throw it wide and go run off into freedom 
that we find slavery and regret. So God says to Samuel, fine, I'll tell him I'll, you know, take my place in the hall. Just, but do let them know what's coming. Oh, and Samuel lets them know what's coming. And you have to consider how these people heard this. Because these people knew Samuel. They grew up with this guy. They knew that from the time of his youth, as we've learned in this study, God did not, here's the biblical language, let any of the words of Samuel fall to the ground. Here's what that means, practically speaking. That when Samuel delivered a message from God... Every single time it happened exactly the way Samuel, as God's messenger, said that it would. Now, consider that. Because what that means is that these guys are not listening to this skeptically and going, oh, I don't think it's going to happen that way. They're saying, I think it's going to happen that way, and I would prefer that to your rule, O God. That is insulting. Verse 11, Samuel says, all right, here's what's coming, guys. Listen for the word take. And notice what gets taken. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will also appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, you know, from your sons. Oh, they'll serve in his army, but they'll also serve in his fields. Some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. Not yours. No, no, no. No, they'll be his now. And to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. No. He's going to wait till you really get it. You want to be like the rest of the people? He's going to let you experience what that's like. And yet even though this came out of the infallible, at least when he speaks for God, mouth of Samuel, listen to the response. And it's a unified response. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, which is to say they refused to obey God's voice, and they said, no, and it's emphatic, but there shall be a king over us again so that we may also be just like all the other nations, which is exactly what we're not supposed to be like. So a little summary. We have a king. His name is Jesus. He calls us, indeed commands us, for his glory and for our good, for our freedom from slavery, for our freedom from tyranny, for our freedom from oppression, for our freedom from all of the little tiny kings that will destroy and devour us in this world to live for him. And when we do live for him, then our lives look markedly different from those who don't live for him. 
But when we ask him to stand in the hall, he says, all right, well, no, no, it's fine. Okay, all right, go ahead. Put your king on there. But know this, you will not do well under his reign. He will take from you things that are very precious. So I'll be out in the hall and I'll wait for you. I won't beat you up when you come back. But I will forgive you if you truly repent. And I'll resume the throne if you really give it to me. And I will fill you with my spirit and grant to you the wisdom of my word and give to you the community of my people that you might learn to live a life that is actually life. So I'm going to be out in the hall and you come get me when you're ready. And the two primary areas of life that we do this in, Lord, could you get off the throne because I've got this little king that I, and it's going to be awkward if you stay. <laughs> Not going to lie, so leave the room our sex and money. Some things absolutely unequivocally do not change. And I want to give you some statements of your king, summary statements on these topics, summary statement on sex. You ready for this? This is going to be awesome. You are going to love this. God says this, here is your king's word on sex. Sex is for married people and married people should have sex. All the married guys are like right on. (laughs) All the people here with their parents are going, oh, good grief. This is awful. So awkward. And so life-changing. Sex is for married people. He defines marriage, doesn't he? Well, this is uncomfortable. He defines it for us. One man, one woman. And married people should not be stingy with their bodies toward each other. And I am honestly not sure, and I actually thought about this this week. I thought to myself, can I come up with a more awkward, ridiculous-sounding, archaic, you've got to be kidding me, you are so out of touch that right now I'm going to check my emails. I mean, I thought that maybe there was going to be something to this, and then when I heard this, I just thought, holy cow, what century are you living in statement? I I can't come up with one. I really can't. Sex is king, guys. Have you noticed that? And here's the problem. It's king outside the doors of the church. And it's king inside the doors of the church. It is unequivocally, without a doubt, an area of life in which we've said, Jesus, go stand in the hall, man. Go stand in the hall. Shut the door, because this could get weird. Don't come back. Not in this area. And it is a brutal, terrible, tyrannical king. And you're like, really? Is that true? You sure about that? I actually am, yeah. I think if you gathered up all the regret in this room, all of the shame in this room, all the guilt in this room, all of the things that you would die a thousand deaths if anybody else knew about in this room, 90% of it would be about this issue. So how has our freedom served us? Put freedom in quotes. How about that king? How's he doing? Liberated? Try this on. Imagine a world with me, and this is really going to stretch your imagination, in which for the last 30, 35 years, the whole world said, okay, okay, sex is for married people, all right, and married people should have sex. We're good, and we're going to do that, and the whole world did. How would the world be different? I made a list, and it's 
I don't have everything on the list, but consider some of the things that are on the list. It would be a world without adultery. It would be a world without rape. It would be a world without incest. It would be a world without pedophilia. It would be a world without sexual abuse. It would be a world without kids that don't have fathers, at least for this reason. It would be a world without unwed moms. It would be a world without pornography. If I told you the statistics, it would get real awkward in here. It would be a world without the sex trade. You know that we are number three in the nation in that. 99.9999, and just run out all the nines, percent of the 52 million abortions that have occurred in this country alone, like I don't know what the worldwide number is, would not have occurred. AIDS would be massively curtailed. Venereal disease would have burned itself completely out. We wouldn't have it. And not only would we be without all of those things, but we would be without all of the wounds and all of the damage and all of the price, the cost of the tyranny of it, emotionally, socially, economically, within our families. It ruins us. It ruins us. And I'm going to add marital problems to that. Not all marital problems. But it's one of the three big areas, sex, money, in-laws. You know, put them, whatever, put them in whatever order you want. No, I mean, for real, those are the three. Sex, money, in-laws. Okay, here's why sex is a problem in marriage in most cases. It's because we have not abided by this rule. We're free. Oh, we're going to go do whatever we want. And then we bring whatever we've done into the relationship that we have. And it doesn't help us. Oh, Tom, I'm practicing. (laughs) No, you're not. And you can't show up at the church 20 minutes before the service and go, hey, um, do you think you can delete all this stuff, you know, these images and experiences and feelings and all of this? Because I want to start fresh. There's no delete button on this deal. But here's what you can do. You can realize that you're broken and bleeding and what it is that you've been worshiping and go out into the hall and find your real king and lay yourself down in repentance and humility before him and say, you know what? I have worshiped the wrong God. And I'm humble enough to A, acknowledge it. I need your forgiveness. I need your healing Lord, take even my scars. And we see it over and over again. And somehow use them for your glory. And give me the capacities to submit to your wisdom that I might not be subjected to the continued tyranny of this puny little king. And then, of course, there's the tragic little god of money. I'm going to give you two statements from your king on money. Really countercultural, okay? It's good that you're seated. Your king comes to you in his word, and I'm summarizing. Again, it's, it's in a nutshell stuff. The first thing that he says about your money is that it isn't yours. And I could bore you to tears with all the verses on this. I'm going to give you one. Psalm 24, verse 1, David the psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. What is he saying? He's saying that God owns absolutely everything and absolutely everyone. And here 
is why, if you think about it. It's because he created everything and everyone, and in no time since then has he given away the title or the deed to anything or anyone. Now, he does give to us life. He does give to us breath. He does give to us health. He does give to us energy. He does give to us the abilities. He does give to us capacities. He does give to us opportunities. In him, we live and move and have our being, Paul says. We are so autonomous and we're doing all this stuff for ourselves. No, 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 no. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Every good and perfect gift. Every. And he gives to us through those means, generally speaking, usually at least a teeny tiny little bit, no matter how much you have, of all that belongs to him. But guys, that's not a deed. It's not a title. It's a trust. And just like when you take your money and you give it to a money manager and you expect that money manager to then manage your money in such a way as to advance your purposes, your cause, your mission, well, it seems to me that he does the same for us. And just like you don't mind when your money manager makes a little bit of money off the money that he's managing for your cause, for your mission, for your purposes, well, look, the Lord obviously gives you wealth by which to live. But when we take it and act as though it's all ours and create for us a life that excludes any possibility of using it in any way, shape, or form to advance his cause, his purpose, his mission, okay, well, then we've got a problem then it seems to me that the king is going, hey, um, I don't know if you noticed, but I think I'm in the hall here just because I've just been pushed out in this area of your life. He comes to us and he says, look, I give you 100% of all that you have. I'm going to let you keep and manage 90. I want you to give me 10 as a starting point. And then beyond that, I want you to know that sometimes I'm going to come to you and say, you know that family in need? I, I want to cover that need through you. you. You know that ministry that has that? It, yeah, I want you to take care of that. You know, your neighbor, your coworker. You develop the capacity to hear his voice. And he begins to direct through you his resources to a world that worships this little God called money and finds it quite refreshing and becomes quite inquisitive when they discover someone who doesn't. So the first thing he says is that it's not yours. The second thing he wants you to know is that more than anything else, and he says a lot on this topic, save it up, store it up, be wise with it, don't get into a lot of debt. I mean, real practical stuff. But more than anything else, he says, give it away. Be generous with it. And in doing so, both to proclaim and to discover for yourself that he's actually your treasure that your security is really in him, that he is your comfort, that the significance that you're looking for is not found in wealth, it's found in Christ. You discover, you see, in worshiping him, that you find in him all the things that you're looking for in this other puny God. And, And the deal for all of us is, you know, we can either take him at his word Or we, like these guys we're reading about in this story, can put him in the hall and learn it by experience. That's what they did. I'd rather learn from their lesson. So the bottom line is that as God's people, we have a king. His name is Jesus. He calls us to live for him. 
to worship him and to serve him and in him to find life and purpose and meaning and satisfaction and freedom. And when we do that, our lives look a lot different from the lives of everyone else. And when we don't, they don't. They don't. And he lets us worship these little gods so that we can realize that, no, he is the king and he is the God that we need. He says, I'll be out in the hall when you're ready to come to me in humility. You will find me very receptive. So I want to close today by asking you this. Where is King Jesus relative to your life? Like, is he on the throne? Is he in the hall? Has he left the building? I mean, you know, where is he? Really? And if you're sitting there going, yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. Okay, well then here's a diagnostic question. In what area or areas of your life do you look just like everyone else? Everyone else you work with, everyone else you go to school with, everybody else in town. What area or areas? Because that, I think, is a pretty good clue to who or what is, it, is seated on the throne of our lives. We are not called to be like everyone else. We are called to be remarkably and stunningly different. And when we are, Peter says, well, then prepare to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Get ready to share Jesus because people are going to start asking. They just are. And I think in Dave Ingram, we had a really good example of a guy who lived and who died both for and in Jesus. So think about that today, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there is a God in this world Um, and in this universe who is authentic, who is real. Lord, who comes not to take but to give, not to bring slavery but freedom, not to oppress but truly to liberate. A God who loves and is selfless, a God who loves and is humble, a Lord who waits patiently and who calls us to himself by his Spirit. I pray, God, that we would hear your call and soberly examine our lives that we might escape slavery, tyranny, oppression, and death of all kinds, that we might surrender our sin and ourselves to you, that we might experience your forgiveness and know the joy and the eternal life thereof, that you might begin to heal our wounds. They're self-inflicted, Lord. They're self-inflicted. That you might take even our scars and redeem and bring good out of them as we surrender all of ourselves to you. So, Lord, let us hear your voice. Let us put down our defenses. God, let us come to the Savior and let him truly be our king. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.